Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate Political Gap Fest for August 29th, 2019, the Don't Worry, I'll Pardon You edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C., in an extremely humid and hot studio. So if you hear me sweating later during the show, that's what you're hearing. Joining me from Slate, Brooklyn, maybe. I don't know. Where are you, Emily Bazelon of Yale and the New York Times? Yes, that's where I am. Yes, yes, yes. Slate, Brooklyn. And then from somewhere else in New York, but not in Slate, Brooklyn, is John Dickerson of CBS 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hey, I was just Googling where, how far Emily and I are from each other. Um, Why are you guys in the same studio? Well, because our peregrinations took us to different places. Okay. On today's GabFest, President Trump is offering pardons, maybe is he offering pardons, to White House officials who break the law in pursuit of building his wall along the southern border. Then the surprising fight about whether the United States is a republic or a democracy, or maybe there's no real contradiction there. We'll find out. Then a set of strange crises in political journalism involving bedbug tweets and dead cats. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, dear listeners, we're going to be live in the Twin Cities of Minnesota on Wednesday, September 18th. We're going to be at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. There are still some tickets left, not many, but some. And you should go to slate.com slash live to get more information and get tickets. We're really looking forward to that show. uh, And it's going to be a great night. So join us on September 18th in St. Paul at the Fitzgerald Theater, slate.com slash live for tickets. Wonderful, shocking Washington Post story this week describing President Trump's frantic effort to get 500 miles of border wall built before the election. There are two memorable quotes. One was, take the land, and the other is, don't worry, I'll pardon you. The president apparently just urging his administration, his his uh, employees, his employees in the White House to do whatever it takes to get this wall built, either to refurbish bits of fence that are already there or to build new bits of fencing. The story was absolutely stunning. There are other amazing details, the level of presidential involvement in what the fence would look like. A president who can't seem to pay attention to, say, the details of what a tariff is, is insistent that this wall be painted black and be topped with sharp spikes, even though there's no apparently good reason to top it with sharp spikes. That doesn't seem to be the most efficient way to have a wall. And and then there's a, you know, the final third of the piece is all about an incredibly corrupt deal involving a North Dakota senator and a North Dakota company to get a contract to build wall segments for this North Dakota company. All in all, an absolutely appalling story. So many shocking details. Use of eminent domain to pursue a policy explicitly rejected by Congress. It's just shocking. Emily, what is the worst aspect of this this story? Hmm, the very worst. I mean, the contract is really problematic, should we say? No, let's not say problematic. The contract's really bad if that all of those allegations are true because it's just straight up corruption. However, I would say that if it is true that the president is preemptively offering pardons, and we should say that his aide said that he was joking about this, but that idea that you're um, inviting uh, government officials to break the law by saying, oh, don't worry, there will be no consequences. I can make sure you won't be punished. Actually, I think that's probably is the worst part of all. And John, I want to dig into this. Oh, he's just joking piece of this, because is it not the case that this president has effectively used pardons or dangled pardons or signaled the use of pardons in order to advance political mm-hmm. ends oh, and to help political <clears throat> allies? Allies. Yeah, absolutely. Also, one, just one thing on the contract. I thought the the Army Corps of Engineers didn't pick up the contract. 
So it, the contract hasn't happened. It's just that the president uh, and Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, whose constituent is the major donor, or, or whose constituent and major donor is the head of the company that wants this contract, uh, that's the thing, right? And the contract yes, hasn't gone through. Yeah, that they're pushing for just, it. Yes. Yeah, they're yep. pushing for it. And they're but, pushing for it in part because the CEO of the company um, – uh, shrewdly, but also tells you something about the state of things. It went on Fox News a lot um, and used that, as many people have, including members of the Senate uh, and House, to talk to the president. In other words, it was his big defender on Fox that got, got him in the president's good graces, and now the president is pushing for his company to get the uh, contract to build this wall, as I understand it. When you're a president, you don't get to joke about pardons, turns out. You don't. Like, there are some constraints on the job. You're given immense power in certain areas, and you have to treat that power with respect. It's like, uh, well, I'm, I won't draw an analogy because people will get confused by it. But um, I don't think you get to joke about pardons. Also, it it's certainly seems clear from the um, the Mueller investigation that that the idea of pardons was both implicitly and maybe explicitly dangled to Paul Manafort. And then there was the case of, of telling the head of uh, DHS to just go ahead and deny asylum claims and that the president would pardon anybody who got in trouble for doing that. I think that when you have the amount of power that a president has, um, there are certain – and this is true of a CEO or any other thing. When you speak, your witticisms or your notions become orders. Um, in the same way a presidential tweet is considered an official presidential statement, a joke about a pardon is an official presidential statement. And that might seem fussy, but you know, when you give them that much power, you have to uh, engage with a few fussy rules. And also, don't you feel like joking has become a way of just, uh, in retrospect, uh, disavowing and excusing so many kinds of troubling remarks that various people have made? This is like the new thing. Everything's a joke after the fact. And so then you're right. not accountable for it. Right. Well, this is the methodology of the of kind of white nationalists, too, which is that like a lot of white nationalists, you know, put their racist, disgusting, violent ideas out as in the form of kind of joking memes, the eliminationist memes. And it's, it's like, and if you don't, and if you don't laugh about it, you're, the, you're a humorless prig. But actually, you know, you put it out as a joke, and then it, you let it morph into an idea. Right. And right. you can disavow it later, because you can say, oh, we're just joking, you people are humorless, you don't know, you don't know what, you know, what, what playful political speech is. Um, but then it becomes a, a way of actually thinking about the world. And the pre- many, this president is very, very good at that. Many a true thing is said in jest. I want to also say that, you know, from beginning to end, the story of this border wall is about Trump figuring out how to exercise power in the face of obstacles and frustration, right? I mean, we are in the place we are now because Congress decided not to fund construction of the wall to the tune of $5 billion. Then Trump invoked the National Emergencies Act as a way of reappropriating money that Congress had already appropriated for military spending for other purposes. That uh, action by the president is being challenged in the courts, but the Supreme Court decided not to prevent the construction from going forward, seeming to rely on the idea that the plaintiffs who had sued the Sierra Club in this case were probably not going to have standing to sue. The idea that constructing the wall was going to mess things up for like hikers and fishers, et cetera, that that's not good enough. And the House, which also tried to sue, has also been told it doesn't have standing. So you have this very questionable use of the president's power under the National Emergencies Act because the National Emergencies Act does say in it that you're not supposed to re move money around once Congress has denied funding. You would think that this would be exactly what happened in the budget negotiations. That is what the lower courts have found. But the Supreme Court's not going in that direction. So we're plunging ahead with this wall construction, despite the fact that Congress never signed on for it. And then you have these still internal issues and obstacles going on. And Trump according to The Washington Post, hell-bent in proving that he can really get this construction moving before the election in order to satisfy his base and being willing to, you know, basically run roughshod over any laws, niceties, but mostly laws that are in his way. And you can totally understand why he has such an affection for the pardon power, because it's sort of 
the last defense that the government has against illegal actions is to say, well, wait a second, I could be prosecuted. And if he can take that threat away, then like he really does get to do what he wants. I, I, I mean, just imagine if it were any other president, if it were a Democratic president proposing to offer pardons for the wanton use of eminent domain to pursue a policy explicitly rejected by Congress taking money allocated for military purposes, for the benefit of military families, reallocating it for something that Congress has explicitly rejected, a policy that the president himself has acknowledged is not a particularly effective policy and that he's pursuing simply to meet a campaign promise. And also that thrown in there is the corrupt lobbying by a campaign donor to a major senator on television in order to get a front seat on these contracts. I mean, the, 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 this would literally explode the country. If these aren't impeachable offenses, I don't even know what impeachable offenses could possibly be. I mean, every aspect of this is is corrupt. I mean, this is this is this is a high crime. This is a misdemeanor, a high crime and a misdemeanor. <laughs> you know, a, a a vacuum cleaner and a pool cleaner. I mean, it's insane. Well, can I just this is a this is really a side road, but I mean on the on the corruption piece. David, you in the past you've defended basically the greasing of when we talked about Mitch McConnell and special privilege in the transportation department for Kentucky interests. Um, you had a much more generous view towards the kind of grease that makes the wheels yeah. go round. So why isn't this a case of that? Yeah, no, I, I that's the for me that's the least uh, troubling aspect of it, truthfully. I, I mean, I think you know all the con- all everyone is lobbying to get pieces of his contract. This guy is smart enough to go on Fox and to get his North Dakota senator to do it. So that that part does not bother me nearly as much as all the other parts. And the the kind of use the the use the idea that we're just going to eminent domain things, the idea that we're going to ignore the explicit will of Congress, the explicit will of Congress not to fund it, and that we're going to offer pardons is it's incredible. It's it's just. Psh- but no, I thought that you were going to stick to your guns on corruption because you were using it pretty effectively in your argument before, but uh, apparently not. <laughs> well, I don't think it's. I don't think it's like a. I, I don't think it's right. I just don't. I think it is the least troubling piece of it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, of an incredibly troubling story. To go back to your any other president, the idea that the symbol of the wall, which is like actually embodies division is the fight that we're having here. And then that this supposedly strongly conservative president would be saying, take the land about people's private property. I mean, this has been a cause for conservative libertarians for lo these many years, that the government should have limited eminent domain powers, that we should make sure to, you know, check every box before we go around taking people's property. In the any other president thing, I'm um, up to a point. Everybody needs to pay attention to that part. Up to a point in favor of both um, or all three branches fighting to maximize their advantage and then the system kicking in and slapping them back. So presidents should maximize what they can do. Now, the, the where the line, of course, comes is A, when Congress explicitly says no, uh, and then B, perverting the use of powers. It's one thing to maximize. Um, it's another with respect to the pardon power uh, to Pervert. But I think that uh, that an energetic executive in pursuit of their goals um, crossing lines and then either winning or getting pushed back is pretty much okay. The thing is, though, when you think of the list of 50 things that you could apply this kind of blunt force from the executive, this kind of serious focus, this kind of obsession, this kind of going forward despite the fact that the majority of the country where you it's hard to get a majority of the country to believe in anything but it turns out they believe 60% or so don't want a wall nevertheless ahead he plows um uh, that that um think of all of the other issues that are more that more require collective action of a national government than this which isn't to say this isn't important but is it is it aren't there a few things items say one through six seven or eight that maybe could have this kind of attention applied to it that would be a better use of the presidential power that's what i um that's what yeah. the disordered nature of priorities that's a good point what i would say john to your your first point which is that the the each branch should act as in a maximalist way and then you know to get as much done as it can and then rely 
uh, on the others to push back or rely on the system to push back. I mean, I think the problem with that theory is that essentially the legislature is incapable of action at this point, and it's incapable of either being a, a, an affirmative actor or, or here where it was a negative actor, uh, its powers are not being respected. The fact that it rejected this policy, its powers are not being respected. Right. And so the, 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 the mechanisms that you're talking about don't seem to work and that the Supre- we have a, a Supreme Court which has apparently decided that the executive's ability to act should uh, override Congress's desire to stop the executive from acting. And so, so there isn't a, that notion that each branch can act maximally and do what it wants. It doesn't seem to comport with the reality, which is that these institutions don't work except the executive and the executive is working too well. Right. Also, the idea that the that emergencies are the vehicle for executive aggrandizement is, you know, was, um, and we'll talk about the beginning of the uh, the uh, the creation of the Constitution. But that was one of the things they worried about the most was that a president would declare an emergency and then and then expand the size of the the presidency. So this is um, perfectly in in keeping with that. On the question of conservatism, I think that um, Newt Gingrich put it best, which is Donald Trump is not a conservative. He's anti-liberal. What uh, what that does is both help sort the fact that he holds um, non-conservative views on takings and eminent domain, on Russia, on the deficit, on tariffs, <laughs> um, on personal propriety. And what that does, though, is it shifts standards, right? Conservative ideologically, uh, originalist in the Constitution, all those things, throws them aside and puts at the top of the list in terms of supporting him, just the fact that he's owning the libs and that he is. So it turns basically a partisan, it puts a partisan frame on everything and not a, an ideological one, which is just one of the amazing ways in which he's t- completely reshaped the, the Republican Party, in this case on takings, which as Emily said, I mean, this has been an obsession uh, among conservatives for all the years that I've covered them and will be another thing that will that will be elastically um, swept aside uh, now that the president has taken a position that's opposite the traditional ideological view. Right. That's totally a good point. And Trump in his past as a real estate developer was also very willing to override concerns about eminent domain, right? If you're thinking as a developer and you have proper property owners who are in your way because they don't want to sell, well, you're not so sympathetic to them. And one other tiny point, this all exists, by the way, uh, success of the president being a maximalist, which is one of his talents, is the result of a failure of, of something else he sold himself on, which was as a negotiator. There was actually a period where he could have gotten his border funding if um, he had kept going on negotiations that had been teed up for him by the Republican leaders of the House and Senate. But he blew up that deal, and which forces this. So it's not just maximizing and perhaps crossing lines as an executive, but it's having having failed at the A, easier, and B, um, sort of proper way in the system to adjudicate these kinds of things, which I think is an important piece of context. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Plus, of course, you get an ad-free version of this show as well. And today, our bonus segment is going to be The President talking about nuking hurricanes. Is that a crazy idea? Is that a great idea? I mean, we're not really going to entertain it from a um, nuclear science perspective, but we'll Why just... not? I mean, we're all such experts on nuclear science. I've been boning up. And hurricanes and meteorology. Yeah, exactly. Three strong suits of mine. That's, imagine what you're getting in Slate Plus. Nuclear science, meteorology, and public policy. How good is that? Go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, 
or has a great deal for Mother's Day, listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Two of the most charismatic members of Congress spatted this week as Republican Dan Crenshaw of Texas hit out at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, over her proposal, her suggestion that we abolish the Electoral College, not a, a suggestion shared widely among many people. Crenshaw's fundamental argument was that these United States, we are a republic, we are not a democracy, and that the 51% should not be able to lord it over the 49%. So it's this exchange sparked rage on all sides and sparked a real debate and a fight. And Jamel Bowie wrote a very excellent column in the New York Times for his column about it. Um, John, are we a republic or a democracy, or is that a false choice? Well, it's 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 kind of a false choice. Well, <clears throat> we're we're a republic, but what do those two words mean? A today, <clears throat> and what did they mean in the original uh, confection and creation of the country in the summer of seventeen eighty seven? And then, why does any of it matter? So that's like four different playing fields just to even begin the conversation. And that's what's difficult here. I love the discussion and the debate in the, in the same way I love all debates about history because we – you know, you go back to the original document and try and figure out what it was trying to say and then, and then whether we veered from it and what's still real and what needs modification. And even a flawed document like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution um, is durable enough for – uh, someone like Frederick Douglass to take those founding documents and use it to bring America to a better place. So it's really important to go back to the original con- conception of this. But you can't just pick and choose. And part of what the republic and, dem- and democracy debate does on the on the side of those who would declare we are a republic is to kind of pick and choose. And particularly with respect to the electoral college. All right. Emily, John just failed completely to answer my question, which is are we a republic or a democracy or is it neither because he said it's five-dimensional chess <laughs> instead. So are we a republic or a democracy? We, or are they the same thing? We are both a republic and a democracy. We are not a direct democracy, right? That Athenian notion of democracy, the city on the hill, everybody has a say in every decision. We're not that. We're a representative democracy. Aside from that, it seems to me that basically the terms are interchangeable. The Republican, the the word republic refers, comes from the Roman, refers to Rome. Uh, democracy is a Greek word, refers to Greece, to ancient Greece we're talking about. There are elements of the Constitution and the Electoral College is the one that, you know, speaks the most loudly right now that really go against majoritarian rule. Um, And so I think that that is an important part of the conversation. And John, I am eager to hear your thoughts about um, the origin of the Electoral College and what it was doing there and how that should shape the debate about it today when it's having a a potentially um, really counter-majoritarian result, in which, of course, what I mean by that is that the popular vote winner of the presidency is not necessarily the person in the White House. John, I, I, too, I want to hear your point about this, too. Mm-hmm. I want to hear your take on the Electoral College. Can I, can I put a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a landscape out for us? Which is that I think one of Crenshaw's points, one of, one of Dan Crenshaw's arguments was we don't want a society where the 51% rules over the 49%, domineers the 49%. And I think what he elides in that is that we actually have something which is, <laughs> which is the opposite, which is we have one where the 49% or in really the 46% is able to rule and domineer over the 54% because all of the counter-majoritarian mechanisms that exist in in American 
public life, some of which are naturally built into the system and some of which have been added to the system or have been exaggerated by policy measures, usually undertaken by Republicans, favor Republicans right now. And so you can think of it, this is an argument made by Jacob Levy, I think of the Niskanen Center, which is a kind of centrist Republican, old line Republican institution, but the uh, limiting voting, the Electoral College, the Senate itself, gerrymandering, voter ID, the fact that the Supreme Court has become a partisan institution and it's, and it's like favors one side or the other. In each of those, each of those circumstances, each of those institutions, each of those policy ideas, whether by intent or just by like natural progression, it's counter-majoritarian and it significantly favors one side. And so we are, that's what's so scary to me is not that we're neither a democracy nor a republic. We're, we're a place where min, there's a minority rule with every institution stacked in favor of one side, essentially. not every, Almost every institution stacked in favor of one side and its uh, minority status. Right. right. The system was designed to have balances, and the balances you would have counter-majoritarian in the – in the Senate, but that would be balanced by the House, and the and the executive would balance everybody. The, the The power was chopped up and distributed based on the idea that basically, if everybody sought their own advantage in the system, it would create a rough equipoise. Uh, but that that breaks down when everybody runs over to the same side. On the Electoral College, if you read Madison's notes from the Constitutional Convention, they basically are – they're wrestling over whether the president should be elected by the legislature or by um, direct vote from the people. There's arguments, obviously lots of arguments on both sides. Basically, they conclude we don't want him beholden uh, – and it was him in that case – to the legislature because then he'll be – we won't have a separation of powers and he'll just do what the legislature wants so that he gets reelected. But direct democracy or direct vote from the people freaked lots of people out because the founders had – depending on how you want to view it, uh, a very dim view of the ability of regular people to understand what the hell was going on. Um, but they also, and you can pick whether you want um, Jefferson or Madison or Hamilton, they all believe that the best thing you wanted to have was a signal from the people that would then be uh, sifted and sorted with the reason of the, of the person who was elected. Well, they come to the question of, the, uh, of how to pick a president and – uh, a direct vote gets some um, some momentum, but the problem is they need the Constitution to be ratified by the southern states, and the southern states are never going to ratify something because they lose on the population count, unless, of course, you want to count slaves as, real, as full voting members of the South, which they didn't want to do either. And Madison says it plainly. He says the right of suffrage was much more diffusive, which is, say, which is to say extensive in the northern and in the southern states. And the latter could have no influence in the election on the score of Negroes. The substitution of electors obviated this difficulty and seemed on the whole to be liable to the fewest objections. So he's basically saying to get, this th- to get the buy-in from the south, we have to create this electoral college. Now, here's the thing about claiming that we're a Republican, not a, democ- a democracy in the context of this electoral college debate. The concept behind the electoral college was you'd have these votes and each state would get to determine how the electors were, were chosen. The way they viewed it at the time was that the electors would have A, independence, which they don't have anymore, and B, that they would take a look at the people, uh, the signal they got from the people, and then they would make their own judgments, sometimes going against the will of the people. But they would pick a virtuous president for the office. And virtue was the key quality that they wanted the president to have. So the reason this debate falls apart is we don't have an electoral college, and it fell apart in 1800. I mean, it fell apart almost immediately. But we don't have an electoral college that behaved in the way it was originally designed to behave, which was to have a bunch of wise electors taking a signal from but acting on their own reason to pick a president. And the reason it really doesn't work with respect to to President Trump is that President Trump is um, everything the founders didn't want in their presidents, which is to say somebody who had a talent for whipping up the public – Candidates at the original founding of the, of the country weren't even supposed to display any interest in the job because to show interest was to show that their ambition was was too hot and that was the greatest thing they worried about. And his personal virtue, which was a really important thing to the original founders because only if you have personal, personal virtue is it a bulwark against the power you're given as a president, his personal virtue would have made him instantaneously unqualified for the office. So if you want to go back to the founders and use their rules for p- 
picking presidents, you would have to disqualify the person who is now the head and reshaping the Republican Party. So if you're going to if you're going to say we're a Republican, not a democracy and, and go by the strict construction of the original thing, then you have to be you have to sort of sign up to all the rest of the original thinking and the original creation of the Constitution. And that's what's such a good point. It makes me think of the Electoral College even more than I'd realized before as like an appendix, right? It's like this vestigial organ that was created for a purpose that it doesn't serve anymore, but we're still stuck with it. And every once in a while, it gets infected and like threatens to destroy us um, because it's not doing anything other than like sitting there to cause trouble. But I don't, I, look, no one, it's very hard to defend the Electoral College. It, it, it is, and, and yet I you're going to try? No, no, I would not begin to try to defend the Electoral College. It is not, it is, it is, it is indefensible. However, I don't fundamentally think the Electoral College is the underlying rot in the system. And it's it's not just that the electoral college gets infected and then we get in trouble. It's that the and it's not even the problem isn't even the Republican Party. It's not even President Trump. It's that the institutions themselves do not work. We have set up. We lived in this system of self congratulations for two hundred and forty odd years, or two hundred and yeah, about two hundred forty years, two hundred thirty years. Um, and thank goodness because we've had you know a, a prosperous country and a growing country and and generally wise leadership and a not terribly partisan political system, it's been able to work. But what, now, that we, now that we see what happens when you put certain kinds of pressures on it, the overarching system doesn't work. When you have a non-parliamentary system, so you have too many sources of legitimacy, you have a House that's a source of democratic legitimacy, a, Demo- uh, a Senate that is, and a presidency that is, and each of those are competing. You have a Supreme Court, which is its whole other uh, source of legitimacy, which can anchor or or crush activities by one of the other branches. The each each of these institutions, except the Supreme Court, claims to represent the will of the people. The Supreme Court claims to represent something grander, some kind of constitutional will. And it's impossible to govern if these things are in disagreement. It is. It is also, uh, and they they end up in disagreement because we are we're now a country that is riven by partisanship, and they are completely unfixable. Because they are unchangeable, because the Constitution has reached a point where it basically cannot be amended. And so I don't think it's that – I mean, I, of course, if you fix the Electoral College, you would get sort of, sort of minor improvements and you wouldn't end up with these minority elected presidents. That is that is true. And you but would change would not, campaigning it, vastly, right? Just to would, give that you, its due you would for change presidential. You would change presidential campaigning. Yes. But you wouldn't change the fact – that you have a like a hugely counter-majoritarian Senate, which is you know has wa- vast disparities of, of representation. You have a heavily gerrymandered House. You have a Supreme Court, which has this wholly other different source of legitimacy, and and without fixing all of those institutions, like the fixing the Electoral College is a fairly minor issue. Right, it's true. So, if you're correcting for the structural flaws you are identifying, they're really rooted in our separation of powers. And the first thing you would do would be to change the composition of the Senate, I think. Just to give you a sense of, of how far we've gone <laughs> is that Hamilton used the Electoral College as proof that the Constitution was worth ratifying. In the, in the Federalist Papers, which were you know, created to sell the idea of the Constitution, he wrote, it will not be too strong to say that there will be a constant probability of seeing the station, meaning the presidency, filled by characters of preeminent ability and virtue. So his and then he says basically, and that will be no inconsiderable recommendation of the Constitution. So the the original conception of a set of electors wisely getting together and picking somebody with all the attributes required for the job and the character and virtue required for the job was supposed to be the key selling point of the document. Um, so that's that's how far we've gotten away from that concept. And and I um, I basically think you're uh, I agree, David. On the other hand, when you reform, you have to reform a set of institutions and a set of things, and the filibuster is one of them. Like you got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, and I think the the national popular vote interstate compact. It's a, it's a pretty decent idea. If it, if that get if that got through, I mean, it, I I'm sure it would be immediately tossed out by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would f- find some reason to find it unconstitutional. Well, it would say that it was in violation of the Constitution because it's the states doing an end run around the Electoral College provision, which isn't to say that should be the winning argument, well, but it's right. a plausible one. 
Right. And but you you know that this this Supreme Court would definitely squash it. <laughs> yes. I think that's a safe bet. But but you know what? I'm, well, this the Supreme Court would. But what's interesting and I'm I'm out of my depth here, but the electoral college leaves the the process of electing in part because they were in a hurry and in part they didn't want to just like take on one more fight because they're constantly fighting over and over and over again about you know, add a little dollop of legislative control and participation in here. Add a little dollop of the of the population, but not so much that we run into a mob because they were as fearful of the mob as they were a monarchy. Um, but the states were given the ability to come up with whatever rules they wanted for picking electors. So under that ruling, um, why wouldn't a pact or agreement that the states engaged in to give all electors to the winner of the popular vote um, that would seem to me be, to be within the jurisdiction of the state's authority under the Constitution to name electors however they saw fit. That is exactly the rationale for why the national popular vote interstate compact should be constitutional, is what you were just saying, that it's it should be viewed through the lens of federalism um, as opposed to the provision about the Electoral College itself. One week, so many media controversies. You have the New York Times columnist Brett Stevens, who embarrassed himself by trying to shame someone who had tweeted an insult about him, someone who tweeted, you know, almost into the void an insult about him. And Stevens' excessive response got him in trouble. You have President Trump's allies launching a really significant effort to find embarrassing social media posts by journalists in the mainstream media and use those posts to humiliate and deride those journalists and then and then uh, undermine journalism and undermine the media coverage of the president generally. You have Bernie Sanders lashing out at the corporate media. You have reporters uncovering the different canny ways that Jeffrey Epstein intimidated the press, including possibly sending a dead cat or severed cat's head uh, as a threat to uh, an editor. Um, so I want to start, Emily, with the effort that uh, has been undertaken by some conservatives to track and then tactically deploy uh, evidence of social media uh, posts made by journalists earlier in their careers in order to uh, embarrass people in the mainstream media. So you find something that a New York Times writer, a New York Times editor has said somewhere in their deep in their social media posts, somewhere on Instagram back when they were in college, and then use that to attack something that comes out in the mainstream media. Is this information gathering, this this uh, uh, oppo reporting, this oppo research being done on the media, is that is that fine? Is that just reporting? Is that just, in fact, a form of journalism that President Trump's allies are engaged in? I mean, no. I think it's bad to be making journalists' old social media posts like the center of how we think about their work. I also think, though, that journalists are kind of offering themselves up for this, some of us, in the way that we use social media. And there's a pretty easy fix for this. I mean, Wesley Morris, who's an astute reporter at The Washington Post, like immediately tweeted in the wake of this story, set up your tweet delete systems like, you know, get rid of the old stuff so that it's not out there to be immediately like made much of and to be used to diminish your work. Lots of people, as we've talked about many times on the show, have things they've said or done online from when they were a teenager or in their like hasty youth that don't need to be following them around forever. So I feel like that is uh, at this point, of course, People are looking into journalists and trying to discredit them. And you should assume that's happening and you should behave as if it's happening and try to look at what you've done in the past through that lens. But also think about what you're tweeting now or writing on social media now. I think one of the big problems for journalists is that we are used to having editors when we write for our publications. And when we don't have editors, like a a lot of us seem to be um, spilling over into saying things that we then come to regret. I think there's a kind of teachable moment here about what journalism is that that we may be missing, which is that what you're what you're describing there is a kind of defense by ignorance, which is like pretend those things never happened, you didn't say them, and so that you no one can call you on them. Whereas I actually think the the ultimate uh, argument, which is one I've tried to make about social media generally, is that we're all sinners, right? We all, every one of us, is a sinner in our private life, in our public life, in our work life, 
and we all make mistakes and we're all affected by bias uh and we are all subject to intimidation and bullying. We will, we will, when presented with someone in power, we may be craven towards them or we may behave badly towards them or we, you know, that we, we may uh, kick at somebody we shouldn't kick at. Every one of us has at some point, uh, you know, no, nobody, is, nobody is without sin. But the institution of journalism needs to be separated from the individual failings that each of us have. So I've always thought like this notion that that you know, individual reporters at the Washington Post might vote, and they might vote for a Democrat, or they might vote for a Republican, and therefore they are not to be trusted. Was it just a stupid argument? Whereas what, what or stupid point of discussion? Like what you say is that journalism is this entire infrastructure. It's a methodology of ga- gathering information in particular ways, of checking that information against you know against knowable sources and facts of trying to confirm it in all kinds of different ways, of bringing in other people to check your work. And that so that ultimately who an individual is, like the, 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 the fact that one person has said something stupid at some point in their youthful life doesn't matter. Like that the work itself, because it has become out of a methodology, it's come out of a system, it's come out of an institution, which as an institution can be trusted, is, uh, is important. And that's the lesson that needs to be taught. And that what the project of the conservatism of Trump in general has been to go after these institutions systematically and to make all institutions seem un- incredible, untrustworthy. All sources of information are untrustworthy because they're, you know, everyone is everyone is biased. And no, we have to fight back by saying the institutions actually work because we've developed practices which have been tested by time and which you know, can be confirmed by other people. And that's the stronger lesson to be made. I mean, I like that idea, but I feel like it has some problems. So the very word institution for journalism is an um, incomplete one because anyone can be a journalist who's out there gathering facts and like saying them or putting them out there into the world in some form, right? So we don't have any kind of institutional control, really, and we don't want to have that. Like we want that very democratic notion of journalism to prevail, I think. So that's one problem. I don't agree Another with that. Problem- I don't agree with that. I, 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 I think we want every person to have the right to be a journalist and to pursue facts and to seek to publish them and share them in whatever way they can. But I also think that why do we value the New York Times? Why do we value the Washington Post? Why do we value CBS News? We value them because you guys work for them. No, because <laughs> because they, they are – they have – developed we methodologies rules, and yes. practices and and rules about how you behave. Every you know all kinds of things can be journalism, but not all journalism is equal. That's fine. I mean, I agree with all of that. I think though I have two more concerns with what you just said. My second concern is this problem of um, the idea that everyone is a sinner. Yes, sure, but all sins are not equivalent. And so I think one of the dangers of this kind of like trying to um, you know saddle journalists with like the stupidest thing they ever tweeted when they were 19 years old is it that it adds to this culture right now of like oh they're all a pox on all their houses they're all the same everything's corrupt there are no differences that really matter in the world like you know the new york times is on some spectrum with like it's is equivalent to Breitbart or is equivalent to Fox, even though, as you said, we have much more, I think, rigorous rules about fact checking and admitting our errors, which are to me crucial. So I worry about that as a just kind of like cultural um, result of the throwing up of all this chaff. And the third part of it I'm worried about are, I think, a trap that journalists are falling into ourselves, which is that there's more and more incentive for us to create our own brands, to be out there in a way where our identities are bigger than the actual job we have, or at least we fool ourselves into thinking that. We want that to be the case because it comes with other rewards. And then you have this problem of journalists throwing their weight around, which I think was the real problem with the whole, like, Brett Stevens um, bed bug imbroglio. Am I saying that word right? Probably not. Uh, Anyway, Uh, I think I did say that right. Okay, good. But, I mean, to mm -hmm. me, that's the, the issue there are journalists who, you know, start to think that they're so um, entitled to some kind of like treatment that they should be like alerting other people's bosses when someone criticizes them. Like, no, that is not what we should be doing. Um, just one little modification, I would say. I think, and I don't mean to, uh, this isn't to pick on you, but um, 
Brett Stevens isn't a journalist, so he's a, he he fulfills an important goal over there. But when the categories get mixed, it would be different. Really, you if think a opinion reporter... writers aren't journalists? I think he's not a reporter, no, no, no. but I think he's a journalist. Oh, okay. Well, I'm. I guess my point is we, we are we are showing, not telling here, which is to say that when the categories get get. Um, mush together, you get the standards are set by um, anybody who's in the large group. And so this is what you were talking about earlier versus uh, places like the New York Times and CBS News that have institutional rules. But then even within those institutions, there are different rules for different people. Regular people looking at this don't know the difference between a reporter and a journalist and who has which rules for what. And so if they think, oh, New York Times, then the behavior of a person on the opinion page, which is governed by a whole different set of rules, gets lumped in with the behavior of a journalist or a reporter whatever you want those two terms to mean, who covers a covers a White House. And it would be a greater infraction if a person who was reporting on, who was a straight-up reporter at the time, tried to throw the institutional weight around than, uh, than, an, than an opinion writer. While, though, while you would say both are bad, one is more in keep, you know, opinion writers have a license to throw their weight around. That's kind of their job on the page. So it's a shorter distance to what they do privately, whereas a reporter doesn't. And I think that when all those things get mixed up, people, people are, uh, I think, understandably confused about where the institutional uh, norms kick in and where they don't. I, I mean, I totally huh. agree with you, John, that it would be much worse if if random reporter at the Times did what Brett Stevens did. St- what Stevens did is that there's this GW professor wrote a minor tweet in response. David Carp. David Carp. He wrote a tweet which nobody paid any attention to, where he said there, but, but Brett Stevens is the bed bug in the New York Times newsroom. Essentially, someone pointed this out to Stevens. He says, and he then wrote a, a kind of. Uh, sanctimonious email to Carp in which he cc'd the provost of the university for which Carp works, George Washington University, uh, as a way to clearly try to get Carp in, in trouble. And this backfired on Stevens because Carp publicized it and and it looked so bad for Stevens. It is the use of his name, his reputation sure. to intimidate and squash some random professor about some you know non, like totally trivial joking tweet is ridiculous. But I was wondering what you guys think the proper way to respond to an ad hominem attack is. What is it that Stevens should have done? I mean, my my ignore response is, is ignore it. I mean, I think, is there ever a time when you shouldn't ignore that? I mean, I'm a big believer in the difference between like punching up or level and punching down. And one thing that I notice on social media generally, and journalists do this too, is a lot of punching down. Like if someone mm-hmm. calls, insults me, and then I click on them and they don't have like lots and lots of followers, like why do I want to amplify that message? That just seems like a very odd thing to do. Like, just why? What's the benefit to me except some either very combative, like need to have a fight? Or I also feel like I'm sort of serving that person up to my followers to have them like be the the sacrifice to the mob in some way, potentially. And I don't like that idea either. So I just feel like ignoring is like both the sane path and also in the end, like the just most fair path. I don't know, John, you're not a, someone what? who... <laughs> Can imagine a, like relishes combat for combat's sake on social media, but you have so many more followers than us. What do you think about this? Um, whatever policy um, encourages everybody to set the human value of another person higher um, would probably be better for um, for society. But there's there's a difference between doing it in public and doing it in private. When you get an op-ed on the New York Times, uh, um, which is one of the most powerful positions in public life, you are signing up for a certain amount of grief. Hopefully it will all be uh, aimed at your work, um, but some of it's going to be ad hominem attacks. You would hope that the ad hominem attacks would come from people who don't know better, but whatever, that's what you sign up for. You know... I- Jamel Bowie, New York Times columnist, yeah. actually has an interesting way of dealing with this. I don't know if he's, he always does it the same way, but I just noticed him tweeting about it this week. So Jamel is African-American, and uh, I think he gets a ton of extremely racist and racially tinged critiques for things that he does. And some critiques, it's actually heartbreaking. Critiques is it, is like, it, it's horrible. 
Yeah. I, I, it makes me ill. Critiques is a generous word. But so w- what Jamel does is he doesn't he doesn't go back at these people. And he doesn't he doesn't use their names. He blanks out whoever it is who's yeah. attacked him. But he does show what the attacks are. And so that I think that people who follow Jamel understand like this is a and, and people who sort of know who he is understand like this is when you are an African-American who is writing about the issues that Jamel writes about for the Times, here is the kind of response you get. This is not, you know, reasoned debate. This is not, you know, uh, uh, sober letters to the editor. This is like deeply racist, malicious kind of commentary. And <laughs> Jamel isn't using it to, you know, to cause gang ups on these these people who have attacked him, which he certainly has every right to do. I mean, they've they've done it in public and they are, uh, you know, they're assholes. Mm-hmm. But but he's doing it to sort of show like, here's what's going on. And this is this is I think that's a that's a an interesting way to respond to it um, and to to, yeah, to, to let people know think, what's going on. Right. It's sort of like showing the tax and the cost of speaking yeah. out. Um, and. I guess like, yeah. And I, it made me rethink a couple of summers ago. I just had this ton of anti-Semitic garbage coming my way on Twitter. And I didn't retweet any of it, partly because of my like decision not to amplify it. But also I was ashamed on some level. I felt like I had brought this on myself and like that all these people like, I don't know. It just felt like I must have done something. And so mm-hmm. I love that if you handle things in the way that Jamel does, and there are other commentators who do something similar, you're basically really deeply understanding that this is not your fault. And the showing it to other people has this educational value. I guess we should also mention that um, Jamel, and this is part of like my, I think, idea of punching up or not punching down, but Jamel got this like bullshit, ridiculous tweet from um, Ben Dominich, the uh, editor of The Federalist this week. And and Jamel did retweet that because I think he feels like, well, Dominich is the editor of The Federalist. So like that's people should see that his name is on this um, ridiculous tweet. One of the just thing that I think is a part of this that uh, we probably can't talk about to get to here. But there's also the way in which journalists treat other journalists in the assessment of their work. Um, And there's a maximalism um, with respect to we all know and I don't know whether I'm talking about journalists or reporters here. I'm talking about the people who try to um, use evidence to um, uh, draw a picture of something that's as close to reality as they think it is. So I don't know whether that's a journalist or a reporter. But – but when we when pieces get written, and Dahlia wrote about this with the Jane Mayer piece on Al Franken, there are all of these bad habits that fellow reporters or people who do a similar work as Jane Mayer do that fall into that I think are super harmful to the profession, which is that basically if a if a piece doesn't include all things about everything related to um, uh, the subject that it is uh, that it is worthless, um, or that the prioritization of um, of issues to tackle in the issue set related to what the one journalist is talking about, there's a way in which priorities get kind of messed up here where the big thing that the journalist might be writing about gets totally ignored and then some sort of side fight happens. Um, and 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 we should know better in the way we critique things. Um, and I think this goes touches a little bit on what Emily's talking about, about the public Twitter. Um, you know, obviously saying outrageous things about other people's work gets you more attention than if you say some incredibly nuanced um, thing. Um, and I think also when when critiquing other journalists' work, I think it's important to actually have more of the kind of paragraphs that used to get edited out of slate pieces, which are the like... <laughs> to be sure paragraph that says <laughs> I'm making a critique of this but I recognize that on the big thing the piece that I'm uh, critiquing gets it right or you know I'm picking kind of the third order uh, issue in this larger debate because that's what I choose to be interested in at the moment but don't mistake me for saying this is the most important thing about this debate I think there's some work that we can do in keeping our own ho- uh, house tidy um, that we don't do as much as we should. I love that point, and I want to point out that um, I am a huge fan of the To Be Sure paragraph I started teaching this week. We talked about it immediately. But one of the reasons it doesn't exist anymore is that Twitter doesn't lend itself to that. I mean, threads certainly can, but I think the soundbite quality of mm-hmm. social media is a big problem for journalists. 
Absolutely. And it pulls out of us our worst impulse, um, which is that our first sharp thought is, you know, what what do editors, as you, going back to your original point, Emily, what do editors do and what is the pause that's required by having at least a daily deadline do? It makes you, you have your first reaction and you either say that's the thing around which to build the piece or when you do more reflection and thinking, you say, sure, but that's actually the third most important point and these other two, which might even be sharper and more powerful, but nevertheless, the ordering is right. But Twitter pulls out the sharpest and not always the smartest a take. The pause that refreshes. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you're having a, a refreshing cocktail of some sort on your porch. What will we be chattering about? Actually, I want to, before we get to yours, I, I actually need help. So I'm going to beg for help before we even get to chatter, which is if you know Nashville, Tennessee, or Franklin, Tennessee, the area around Nashville and Franklin, uh, and are very familiar with it. I need your help. Don't answer that, John, just yet. So I'm okay. looking for some recommendations of really great <laughs> off-the-beaten-path spots that someone could go to. And just to be clear, I'm not asking for recommendations for places to get cocktails or bars. This is not cocktail-specific at all. I want off-the-beaten-path places just to do interesting things, to see interesting things, unusual spots, like amazing places to have experiences that are in the Nashville-Franklin area. And if you know of such a things, please uh, email me at david at atlasobscura.com. But I could really use it and soon, um, and I'll explain why if you get in touch with me. But please, if you're in Franklin or Nashville or know those areas and have some off-the-beaten-track suggestions, I would be very grateful. So now, actual cocktails. If you were sitting on a, on a, a screened-in porch in Nashville, Tennessee, John Dickerson, what would you be chattering about? I can well imagine you doing such a thing in, a, in an elegant natty shirt of some sort <laughs> yeah um i'd like to be doing that my chatter is about a piece in the new yorker called reader i googled it by dan chasen um and it's about books it's about um it's basically the idea that that physical books have always been you know with the advent of radio and television and the internet and movies have always been threatened and now with e-readers, we're, you know, even more threatened that the actual physical book um, is in danger. And this piece in The New Yorker is just really lovely. Um, and it um, takes as its jumping off point a book by uh, Leah Price called What We Talk About When We Talk About Books, The History and Future of Reading. Um, but this has particular um, – resonance for me because well, we, two things. One, we've uh, carted up all of our books from Washington. Um, and now when I have conversations with uh, with my kids, we ha- there is this, this history of uh, our lives in books there that can be pointed to and talked about. And the physical thing is absolutely crucial to this. And the climbing up on the shelf to get the book and the thing is crucial. And then Books from my mother's library, which we got 20 years after she died for a variety of reasons, um, were just unpacked by my son. And they have all of these hidden weird gems from my childhood and from uh, from her life and then random things that I don't know where they came from. Anyway, this piece kind of captures the beauty of the physical book. And it also makes me think that as we think things are disappearing, we actually come to a richer and deeper and more loving understanding of them. And this we see not only with with books, but also I think we there is this is the hope of this disordered age in politics, which is that you um, in chaos you see greater voter participation, people getting involved um, who had been shut out of the system before. Uh, You see people reexamining the basic principles of the country and whether they're fair or not fair, the basic history of the country, all of which has been created by this moment of unease and anxiety that everybody feels and, and at least suggests a possible pathway to a deeper, richer understanding of something uh, in the way this piece nicely argues about a deeper, richer understanding of the physical book. Ooh, I liked that was nostalgic and optimistic and hopeful at the same time. I like how you pulled that off. Emily, what are you chattering about today? I am only in the doldrums. I just feel like we cannot let this week pass without noting that we have lost the Federal Election Commission as any kind of effective organ of watching out for the health and legality of our elections. 
What happened was that the uh, a member of the FEC re- is resigning as of the end of August. The FEC now only has three members instead of its full complement of six. Without four, it has no quorum, and it just can't enforce its own regulations. It can't even defend itself in lawsuits. So it will continue to publish the donor information that the staff collects, and that's important. But all the ways in which we should be shielding our elections, making sure that donations are disclosed at this, you know, already toxic environment we have for secret gifts and um, huge amounts of money flooding into elections. At least we should like know about how it works and have some kind of check and balance on it, not to mention the prospect of foreign influence on our elections. I'm sure um, there are Russian agents who are, you know, uh, rubbing their hands together with glee that we have now this totally unfunctional FEC and the Senate should absolutely act. Uh, President Trump should act to put more people on the FEC. There is a rule against having more than three people of either party. And so in order to replace the person who's leaving, who's a Republican, I think that Trump would also have to nominate a Democrat. And perhaps that is why one reason why neither he nor Mitch McConnell seems to be in any hurry. But the sort of um, at least temporary demise of the FEC is really bad news for everybody. It sure is. It sure is. Uh, my chatter is very jolly, and it's the opposite of all that you just said there, Emily. There is an absolutely magnificent story in the Washington Post uh, that came out today, Thursday, I guess it was online on Wednesday, about a dog park in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Chevy Chase, <laughs> Maryland is a uh, very well-off suburb of Washington, D.C. I actually grew up just on the, I grew up in Chevy Chase, D.C., so it's very familiar to me. I grew up on the, in the D.C. side of this, but there's a, uh, it's a, it's a very prosperous uh, area filled with the rich and powerful. John Roberts lives back there. It turns out, as we will discover in a second, that Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed, lives back there. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a fancy place. And they had some, a nice public park there, and wasn't being used for very much. And so the, the town d- wisely decided, let's turn it into a dog park. How nice. Let's have a dog park. It'll be great. It was unanimously decided to turn it into a dog park. No objections. Everyone was thrilled. Set up this nice dog park. Dogs started to come. And what happened is that immediately the neighbors who lived in the dog park started complaining all the time that the dogs were barking. And that was disrupting them as they were trying to sit on their porch and paint or as they were having a glass of wine with their guests. And also, not only were the people, dogs barking, but people were coming and parking. And occasionally someone would park in a spot that, they, that someone's gardener traditionally parked in. And they, oh, no. And so their gardener had to go park somewhere else. On the public street? On the public street. Or I sometimes see. there were people from with D.C. plates, so people coming over the border crossing over the border into Chevy Chase, Maryland to bring their dogs to this public dog park. And they were complaining about that. And it's just a story about the horribleness of people and the horribleness of rich people in particular and the sense of entitlement. And it is so much fun. Oh, and, and it turns out that one of the people defending the dog park is the wife of Jay Powell. Uh, the people who are defending the dog park definitely are more sympathetic. It's just the story is, is every detail of it is perfect. So please, the barking please, please and parking read it. Problem. Barking and parking, exactly. Oh, man. And listeners, you have also uh, given us some great chatters this week. Again, again, again. Tweet them to us at Slate Gabfest. And I am going to mention a, a chatter suggested to us by Juan Carlos Gonzalez Najera. And Juan Carlos uh, points us to a documentary on Amazon or series on Amazon called This is Football, which is about soccer. And uh, he, in particular, points out the first episode, which is a b- group about a group of super fans of soccer in Rwanda, and what apparently what starts as a soccer documentary turns into a view on the genocide in Rwanda and how what role soccer has in bringing enemies together. And he says it's, it's graphic, but it's incredible. So check out This Is Football on Amazon. I've been meaning to check it out. Actually, it's, it's on my queue on Amazon. So uh, I appreciate the, the push to look at it. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Danielle Hewitt has her last stint engineering for us here in D.C. We're going to miss you, Danielle, but you're still going to be a slate, so that's okay. But we're gonna Wait, where's Danielle going? She's just going, she's moving to New York to work on, oh, on, okay. on a, a show in New York. 
Um, right, so allowed. she just won't be working in DC. It's a lo- totally allowed. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcast. Alan Pang helped us out at CBS, and Merritt Jacob helped us out in Slate New York studio for Emily. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. And remember, we have a live show coming up in St. Paul, Minnesota on September 18th. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I said that all really, really fast. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? What's going on? Uh, There's a hurricane approaching the Florida coast, Hurricane Dorian. Uh, Hurricanes got President Trump thinking, apparently. And he has apparently brooded about the idea in a meeting, maybe more than once, according to the very excellent reporter who reported this, who has a history of getting a lot of things right about the Trump administration, that he has suggested the idea of we use nuclear weapons to defuse a hurricane. I'm actually not, even though I know you guys have know how smart I am, not a real expert in meteorology or in nuclear weapons. So I don't know that this is a terrible idea, but it sounds like it's not a good idea. John, you are an expert in meteorology and nuclear weapons. Is it a good idea? I think it's a. I think it's supposed to be a, an atrocious idea. Yeah, because it I doesn't really, work. I don't really no, know. No, I read about this. It, I think it's both a bad idea and doesn't work, I guess. It's, but but I'm no expert. All right. Emily, as always, is is the best prepared of us and has you know, taken a recent class on nuclear weapons and also uh, has a degree in meteorology from Cornell University. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's not true. But GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.